Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. You would go ahead and uh, turn in your scriptures to James chapter 1. If you have your Bibles with you or click on your phones or whatever device you may have that can do that for you. We will get to the passage here in just a few minutes. I'm not sure if uh, Pastor Chase intended this or not. As I was thinking about um, preaching in James and the series that's coming before you over the next four or five weeks, and I thought this is a good way to pause from uh, the book of Romans that Pastor Chase has been taking us through. We've come up to the end of chapter 11, and many consider James to be the most practical book in the New Testament. Um, As we have been um, drinking from a fire hydrant of theology and doctrine week in and week out, over the last several months, and some of that uh, drowned us a little bit. Um, Now we get a chance to turn where James's doctrine and theology is sort of underneath. It's implied or assumed. He does not teach it in the same sort of way that, that Paul teaches it. And so I think it's a marvelous way for this book that's often known as the Proverbs of the New Testament. Uh, To oversimplify it, James is providing the believer with wisdom for everyday Christian life. And when we return to Romans, we will pick up in Romans chapter 12, where Paul will appeal to us, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And this is our spiritual worship. He will remind us that we are not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that by testing we may discern, or if you're from John MacArthur School, discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. James would agree with Paul. He would agree with Paul in every bit of that. God has given us mercy so that we can have faith in him. God has given us mercy so that our faith will make a difference in the world. Religion that is pure and undefiled and before God the Father will make a difference. Let me just take a moment or two since I am leading off to set a little bit of context for the book. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Much in the book of James rehearses what Jesus taught in the Gospels. In fact, if you were to count, you would find 19 different references in James to the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So the half-brother listened well to his half-brother as he was thinking about writing this particular letter for us. He was a key leader in the early church in Jerusalem. He wielded great influence and great authority at that time. His words are living and active and should continue to exercise influence and authority in our lives today. I'm not sure what my preaching partners are going to cover. I'm not sure that I would even choose. I'm going to share five touch points with you just as introduction to lay some groundwork for the book. I'm going to share five touch points, one from each chapter. Not sure they will go there. Not sure that I would go there, but these are the ones that I want to uh, whet our appetites for the book. Here might be a point of emphasis in each chapter. In chapter 1, James will exhort us to be active with our faith. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Oh, by the way, we are going to park right there long and hard today. In chapter 2, James reminds us that exercising mercy makes the gospel attractive when he says mercy triumphs over judgment. 
In chapter 3, James reveals the destructive power of a careless tongue. He gets downright nasty with us when he teaches us about the tongue. He says it is a fire and a world of unrighteousness. In chapter 4, he will teach us that in the economy of God, the way up is down. And that we are to humble ourselves before the Lord. If there's any exalting to be done, we're to let God do that in us and through us. And then in chapter 5, James will promote the efficacy or the power of a righteous life in prayer. Now, just for some reason, I've memorized the King James Version of that little phrase in that verse where it says, the effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So those are just sort of touch points. Again, I don't know where our brothers will take us and we will be blessed in whichever direction they take us. But if you're thinking about James, those are stepping stones that would get you through uh, the book of James, if you would. We need to remember, if you've read James, you know this. None of this is new to you. He is not a word mincer. James has a very direct tone when he teaches, even scolding us at times. He's not bashful with his authority either. There's 108 verses in the book of James, and there's over 50 commands in those 108 verses. So he's not afraid to tell us what we need to be about in our faith. Every time I read through the book of James, every time I read through it or study it, I feel like I'm in a boxing match. James is constantly jabbing me, poking at my heart, trying to land blows. And the only counterpunch I've discovered is to keep him from knocking me completely out is the counterpunch of obedience to do what James tells me to do. Being a doer of what I read is how I avoid James wearing me out altogether. But James is also pastoral. In all of his directness, let us not forget that Pastor James is providing ballast for us to keep our ships afloat, to keep them, our, the, the faith that we have from drowning in the world. When I received my assignment to teach on this first chapter, I just have to note this. I remembered, I went back and looked at my notes. I taught this book five years ago in a former pastorate. I spent six weeks in chapter one. No, we're not going to be here that long, but I am going to ask for license for maybe a little longer than normal this morning as I try to take six sermons and cook it down into, into one. If you'll be gracious with me in that regard, I would appreciate it. Uh, I spent 30 or 31 weeks. I've heard guys take longer, different context, different setting, different reason. I'm just sharing that with you so that I can plead for license if I go a little long this morning. This time around, I get one sermon. I get one sermon. And when I asked Chase, I said, I get one sermon. He said, yes, and you need to be thankful that I'm giving you one. <laughs> he gets that way sometimes. Maybe he, was trying to, maybe he was trying to get me in a James sort of mood here. I don't know. And I am thankful, my brother, for every opportunity and to the church, for every opportunity that I get to stand before you with the word of God open to us. A few weeks back, Dr. Brian Vickers came and preached to us, and he preached from James chapter 2. And he noted, though, as he was setting that up, that verse 22 in chapter 1 is probably the theme of James' whole letter, where he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. I agree with that insight. I agree with that. Um, so I thought it would be wise for us to focus then on that section of chapter 1. If we're going to go through the book in rapid fashion and we want to get a grasp of what James is trying to teach us, it made sense to me not to get too creative. Let's go to where James says we need to be, and let's park there for a while today. We're going to read verses 19 through 27 in just a moment. Now, I'm going to mention all three of those parts, but primarily we're going to be in verses 22 through verse 25. Working from that paragraph, I get this title, Using Your Faith to Make a Difference. 
It's my shorthand for what James would, James would have us to do when he talks about dead faith in chapter 2, and then he talks about a faith that is active is a faith that is alive. I just sort of transpose that and paraphrase it. What James wants us to do is that if you have real faith, use your faith to make a difference for the glory of God and for the good of people, to show how we love Jesus and help others love Jesus. You need to use your scriptures now or look up on the screen and read the passage with me. We're in James chapter 1. James 1, if you're not quite sure where that's at, I should have told you sooner, is stuck between Hebrews and 1 Peter's, towards the back of the New Testament. James chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The Lord Bless the reading and teaching of his word this morning. I want to note for us in verse 21, James exhorts us to submit ourselves, receive it with meekly, submit ourselves under the authority of God's word. Drawing that then into verse 22 and 25, it's clear that James wants us to do something with his word. So right away, we see in verse 22 a call to action. Don't just receive it, James is saying, Be doers of the word and not hearers only. I think that's part of what it means to receive it with meekness, by the way. Three things stand out for me in verse 22. First, we see a command to obey. I'm treating doing as an act of obedience. Obeying is the act of doing. Sometimes doing is mental or or intellectual. Psalm 1 verse 2, on God's law, a blessed man will meditate day and night. Though meditating may appear to be inactive, it is not. It is doing something that invites the approval of God. Most often we interpret doing, excuse me, most often we interpret doing, though, more actively. Most often when we think about doing, we're thinking about someone in some sort of physical activity. Let's say I'm in my basement. I call that my hobbit hole. In a hole in the ground, there lived a yokum. I'm reading scripture, and I'm pausing to meditate on a passage I just read. Sounds pious, doesn't it? Really does. Really does. I do that, though, once in a while. Meditate over what I read. If Debbie comes down to talk to me, it may appear that I'm not doing anything. But if I'm down vacuuming up my hobbit hole and cleaning it up, she hears that noise, and it's more noticeable to her that I am doing something. If God wants me to meditate on his word, though, the doing is tied to that. My obedience is to meditate. I don't want to belabor the point, but I want us to grasp. When we think about doing in James, he is saying, you read something that God expects you to do, obey it. 
James gives us first a command to obey, and then he gives us the object. What are we supposed to obey? Be doers of the word. Be doers of the word. Just to be clear, the context helps us understand that James is referring to the word of God. In verse 18, he refers to it this way. This is the word of truth, which is the means by which God brings forth unbelievers out of unbelief or lostness. In verse 21, he said it is the implanted word which is able to save our souls. I think that's more of a reference to keeping us or preserving us. By staying in the word and doing the word that God has implanted in us, we're able to persevere in our faith. In verse 25, I'm going to argue that the perfect law of liberty is a reference to God's living word, that is the gospel, which is made perfect and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All of these are references to the word of God. So we have a command to obey, an object for our obedience, and a practice to avoid. Do not be hearers only. James exhorts us. Don't just sit down with your Bible and read it. Check it off that you read it and get up and walk away. Do something with what you have read. So we have a command to obey. We have an object. What are we supposed to be obeying? We're supposed to be obeying the Word of God. The target for our obedience is God's Word. And we have a practice to avoid. And many of you have been taught, many of us, I was taught this way, that every time I read the Bible, I should come away with some sort of application. Every time I read the Bible, I need to do something with what I just read. That's not a bad counsel. It's not bad counsel. But I don't think James is making that particular argument in this passage. But he is close to making that particular argument in this passage. Because our tendency is otherwise. Our tendency is to read, look into the mirror, and walk away and do nothing. And just to forget it. To receive the word with meekness means that we are hearing or reading with the intention of doing or obeying. Our call to action in verse 22 is to be doers of the word. That brings life to our faith. It makes it useful. Next, we see this action contrasted with the dangers of inaction. Be doers, not hearers only, which leads to self-deceit. So the second point in verses 22 through 24 highlights for us the dangers of inaction. James identifies two for me. Self-deception, which is explicit, and then I'm going to talk about another one, which I think is implied, which I'm going to call self-approval. The first danger is self-deception. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, thereby deceiving yourselves. James puts a lot of stress on deception in chapter 1. If you read chapter 1, you keep looking at it, you see that word pop up three separate times. So I want to spend a few moments on this notion of deceiving this morning. If James is repeating it, I think he's wanting us to pay a little attention to it and think about it. Verse 16 is the first place that we see it. Verse 16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. In verse 16, James is connecting deception to temptation. You go back up to 13, and James warns us about saying that when we're tempted, that we're being tempted by God. To think God is tempting us is how Satan works to deceive us. God is perfectly holy. Why cannot God tempt us? Because he is, he is perfectly holy. There's no sin in him. He does not tempt us to sin because he cannot tempt us to sin. One thing God cannot do is to act contrary to his nature. He can't do it. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. He is holy. He is perfect. And he is pure. There is no sin in God. So when we get to verse 17, James tells us every good and perfect gift comes from above. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers, about what's going on with you. 
Only good and perfect gifts come from God. So if we see temptation coming from the Lord, then we are missing his goodness, and we are forgetting that God is always for his children. He is never against his children. Satan used this very ruse against Eve in the garden. Did God really say? Is God really for you? He deceived her then that way into eating the forbidden fruit. Verse 16, deception is connected to temptation. In verse 22, we see it again. We read this just a second ago. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Verse 22 connects deception to inaction. Hearing God's word but not doing anything with what we hear is simply a form of deception. Let me illustrate. I called Jeremy yesterday to get some help on preparing the slides. He started out razzing me, mumbling something about, you know, we have systems and processes for that kind of stuff. (laughs) I wonder where he gets that. But then once he got past that and we giggled, he, of course, he helped me. What you're seeing is what Jeremy has done. I'm, I'm very grateful for him. Here's the point. I can watch Jeremy make slides on that software back there from his laptop over and over and over again and yet never do it myself. I am deceiving myself then about my software skills if I think I'm capable of doing that on my own. But I can't. Unless I practice doing what Jeremy has done, I will never be able to manage the systems and the processes of making slides at Oak Park. James' illustration in verse 23 and 24 makes me consider the impact of that inaction on personal discipleship. Look with me again in 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, he's writing to believers. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Here's the scenario. We as believers look into the mirror of God's word. I'm going to get into that a little bit more here in a moment. We see something that needs attention in our lives and we walk away and we do not act on what we saw. The believer can't say he didn't see it because James says he looks intently. He has a careful and concentrated gaze. This is someone who's focusing on what they're reading. So the need is clear. It's visible. The natural face that James refers to means that we're seeing who we really are. And our self-examination by looking in the mirror is meant to reveal what needs adjusting so that we can adjust and make corrections and continue to grow. But when we walk away without acting on what we saw in the Word of God for our lives, we deceive ourselves and think we're all right. What James is saying in verse 23 and 24 makes no sense. Look at a mirror, you see something in the mirror, you don't do anything with it. That makes no sense. How can we look intently and forget what we just saw? Why did we bother to look and take time to look intently if we're not going to do anything about it? I think he's using this nonsense, this sort of illustration, to teach us how easy hearing but not acting turns to self-deception. And in the arena of personal discipleship, when we fail to act on what we see, we're saying, in effect, we're okay. We're better off than we actually, than the Word of God actually says that we are. James makes one more reference to deception in chapter 1 and verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious 
and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, excuse me, deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Here, James is tying deception to how we practice our religion. What we say or what we think about our religion is of no use to orphans and widows in their time of affliction. What we do with our religion to relieve that affliction is using our faith to make a difference. I'm grateful for the families at Oak Park that have adopted children domestically and internationally. I'm grateful for families that take in foster children to show them the love of Christ in a gospel-influenced home. I'm grateful for an active ministry at Oak Park that keeps an eye on our seniors who are no longer able to come to the church. Those actions of doing God's Word provide a picture of a pure religion, a religion that is making a difference. So the danger, first danger is self-deception. It's explicit in the text. James says hearing and not doing is a form of self-deceit. Danger two is a little more implicit. I want to go back to the illustration in 23 and 24 and describe a second danger, what I'm calling it self-approval. Self-approval. Some of you are old enough to remember the sitcom Happy Days. Some of you are old enough to remember that. One of the main characters was a cat named Arthur Fonzarelli, or in the show he was named Fonzie, or even more so, the Fonz. You recall the opening of the show. Some of you may have seen it or even see it now on reruns. I don't know. You recall the opening of the show. There was always a scene where the song's going in the background and Fonzie walks up to a mirror to comb his hair and as he's looking, he decides everything is perfect. Hey! And he just walks away. We call that the Fonzie effect. James would warn us James would warn us, this is how some of us come away from the mirror of self-examination. Now, we may not do the thumbs thing, but we still say, I'm looking pretty good here, or maybe I'll get to that later. We either think our life is good and we have no need to act what's going on like Fonzie, or probably more what James is alluding to, we look, we see the problem, but we fail to address it. And by this inaction, we are deceiving ourselves to think we're just fine. We're essentially giving approval to where we are in our spiritual life in that moment. After seeing something that identifies, no, we're not. This whole section in James identifies for us what failing, how failing to act is dangerous for us. In verse 21, the inaction limits our ability to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. In verse 22 and 25, the inaction involves self-deceit, causes us to miss out on the blessings of God, which we'll look at in a moment. In verse 26 and 27, the inaction reveals that our religion is not what we claim it to be. Our faith is of no use to others who are in need. Here's the point. To make God's Word part of our lives, to place ourselves under the authority of it, to receive it with meekness with which James is referring to, In an earlier verse, to let it bear fruit, we must be doers of the word and not hearers only. If we obey James, he says, God will bless us. Look with me in verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, let's remember, the book of James is like the book of Proverbs. The instruction is not always connected. 
Chase has been able to. He's done this very well. He's been able to tell us something in chapter 8 and take us back to chapter 4, for instance. Or show us something in chapter 10 and then take us back to chapter 5 and see how Paul is connecting his thoughts and keeping us going the same way. James doesn't do that. It's not James' writing style. He's writing very early in the life of the church, probably 10 years or so after the Lord Jesus died and was resurrected and ascended. And he's writing to, uh, using sort of the format of Proverbs, if you will, he's writing to teach these early Christians about wisdom, how to live their Christian life in good ways. But he doesn't connect his thoughts, not in any significant way. But I think we have a connecting thread in the latter part of chapter 1. That is the Word of God. Four times we see the word referred to in verses 18 through 23. But if we're looking closely, then when he gets to verse 25, he doesn't use that expression. In those verses where he had been talking about the word, now he talks about the law. Why? Why did he switch? Why didn't James write in verse 25, but the one who looks at the word and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer? Why didn't he write it that way? Well, He's referring to the word there. And when we come to verse 25, the law is the living word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, full of grace and full of truth. The word, the perfect law, the law of liberty, I think is a reference to God's word perfected in his son. It's a euphemism, if you will, for the gospel of Christ, the full gospel. James is trying to get us see the parallel or the equality here. It is the word of God that issue, excuse me, it is the word of God that infuses faith with life. Our faith gets life because God's word pours into us through the Spirit. It is the word of God that infuses faith with life. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. It is the word of God that infuses faith with life. And it is the life of Christ that models for us then what a living faith should look like. James is not just saying, hear God's word and do it. He is saying, look to Christ and be like him. James understands. We become what God intends us to become by doing what God says for us to do. We become what God intends us to become by doing what God says for us to do. Spend a minute now looking at verse 25. James says that when hearing leads to doing, we invite blessing from God. So the third point is inviting the blessing of God. Two things are pretty clear for us here. We have an action, and there's a promise of God in that. Our action is doing what we hear. Now, I'm going to get a little creative with you here this morning. I'm going to alliterate four four items of doing from this verse. I'm just going to help that. I'm doing that to help us string them together in our thoughts. The first word I'm choosing is to reveal. Revealing is the first part of doing. When I use the word revealing, I'm talking about looking. Stay with me and I'll show you why I use that word. The one who looks into the perfect law is what James is talking about. We must look into God's word. That's first. We can't grow in Christ if we're never in the word of God. Make no mistake, James is is not wanting us to assume that we're going to do this without looking. He's intent that we're going to look. He wants us to look. He wants us to do that. We must look. We cannot do it if we don't engage with it. He uses his word, if you will, to reveal to us what we are like so that we can act in that way and be blessed. 
I choose the word revealing because of what Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 tells us. You have to turn there. You can if you want to, but listen to Hebrews 4, verse 12. Just a couple of pages back if you want to flip there. 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Do you hear those words about the word of God piercing our soul and spirit, discerning our thoughts and intentions? No creature is hidden. We don't just interact with God's word, brothers and sisters. More significantly, more powerfully, God's word interacts with us. One, our looking can take many forms. Personal reading is the most obvious. That's the most exposure that most of us get, probably. Hearing it on the way to work. Some of you do that. You play it on the way. You have commutes, and you play the word of God in some fashion or another on the way to work. Listen to sermons or something of that nature. We can also look into the perfect law uh, by uh, listening to God's word preached or taught. It's a heavy emphasis for us here at Oak Park. I would suggest our best looking takes place when we use multiple forms of that. We're very gifted in the, in the present company not mentioned. We're very gifted in the quality of the folks that stand on platforms in this facility and teach us. We're very blessed by those brothers and sisters in their environments in how they teach. And so we do well to engage in all forms of that to the degree that our schedule will allow us. The application's not hard. If we want to be doers, we must be lookers. So the first word for us is reveal. The second word is to repeat. Repeating is the second part of doing. Repeating is persevering. Looks on the perfect law of liberty and perseveres. I got here and I, and I paused for a while because persevering is a key exhortation for me. I'm prone to wander. I, I'm prone to do well today and not so well tomorrow. I need a reminder to persevere. And I think persevering is a key exhortation in the whole first chapter of James. In fact, I would argue that it's a key exhortation throughout the New Testament. Everything that's being written is so that we will persevere in our faith. Going back to the beginning of chapter 1, though, see how, it, see how this word works its way <coughs> excuse me, in the chapter. See how it becomes our application this morning for doing. Listen with me. In verse 2, I'm not going to read the verses. I'm just going to paraphrase them here. And you can go back and be a Berean with me later, and I welcome that. When God sends trials, <coughs> he is perfecting and completing what he has started. <coughs> Excuse me. He who began a good work in you, Paul tells us in Philippians 1, is able to bring it to completion. So when God sends us trials, he is perfecting and completing what he has started. Persevere in your faith and do so with joy, James would teach us. In verse 5, if you lack wisdom, <clears throat> persevere in asking God and he will give it to you if you ask in faith. In verses 9 through 11, let humility guide your Christian journey. Persevere in fighting the pride, the inevitable pride that's going to knock on your door through materialism and wealth. 
In verses 12 through 15, keep the crown of life ever in your sights, saints. Persevere in fighting temptation, and God will bless you. In verses 16 through 18, be the first fruit of God's harvest for the sake of God's honor and glory. Persevere in testifying with your life that God is a good, good father. Verse 19 through 21, submit to the sanctifying authority of the word of God with meekness. Persevere doing that in putting away sin. Verses 22 through 25, be a doer of the word. Persevere in looking into the gospel, the law, the perfect law of liberty, so that you will be like Christ. Verse 26 and 27, we're not going to cover these, but if we look, this commitment to persevering is what renders our religion pure and undefiled before God. Persevering in these ways will keep you and me unstained from the world. I think persevering runs throughout chapter 1 in those sorts of ways. Revealing and repeating. Looking and persevering. Two parts of doing. Persevering there is to keep looking, keep looking, keep doing it. Repetition frustrates us. You say amen, it's okay. If I were to stand up here and say the same thing to you four or five times in a row, pretty soon you're going to say, I got it, move on, dude. Repetition frustrates us. We don't, I don't know that we do this much anymore. I'm speaking a little bit about ignorance. But when I was in school, we learned by repetition. We did it over and over and over again. I got frustrated with it. Got bored with it. It's boring. That's why persevering is so crucial. It is repetition, persevering, that helps us with the third part. The third word for us is to remember Repetition helps us remember. It's the third part of doing, being no hearer who forgets. Remembering is a principle that runs throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, we will read how stories of God's faithfulness are passed down from generation to generation. They are repeated so that they will remember. They are repeated so that they will remember. A couple of reasons for that. Back then, that's the only way you had history was through an oral form, and that's still true in many third world countries where there's not uh, certainly the word of God written, but literacy in general is poor in other countries, so they do it with orally. But maybe the more significant reason that history is repeated so much in the Old Testament is that each generation wants to make sure that the succeeding generation does not forget who God is and what he has done. Short step there, parents, for an application. It's a tiny step for you for an application. As God has worked in your life, drawn you to himself by his mercy, given you faith to believe, continued to carry you through your ups and downs, your wandering, your good days, and your not-so-good days. Tell your children. They're not expecting perfection from you. Tell them how the Lord of God gives you grace. Teach them about the perfect law, the law of liberty, so that they too may not forget who God is and why he matters. Remembering is a principle that is also in the New Testament. Peter emphasizes it for us. He does it in First Peter, excuse me, in Second Peter chapter 1. He does it to stir us up to diligence in making our calling and election sure. 
Remembering, listen, remembering who God is and what he has done in Christ, when we remember, that should stir us up to obey. And guess what obedience does? Obedience is another fashion of building confidence in our faith. God uses our obedience to make us stronger in what we believe. So that when the enemy comes whispering, we're obeying God and trusting God and we're standing firm in his promise to get us through to the end. We remember God's word so that we can obey God's word. And remembering that leads to obeying is a means for our assurance. The fourth word is to respond. Responding is part of doing. Be no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. Said already, said a lot about doing. I don't know that there's much more to say about it. James is repeating here for emphasis. He's reminding us what what he's trying to teach us. He's telling us essentially a useful faith is an active faith. And an act of faith invites the blessing of God. That's what James wants us to get to in verse 25. He says it in chapter 1, verse 12, about the blessing of God. He says it here again in chapter 1, verse 25. <coughs> Excuse me. A useful faith is an act of faith, and an act of faith invites the blessing of God. God's blessing is a form or a type of God's approval. You can almost interchange those words. I do not have any working knowledge of the original languages, but I know from my study and my reading that when we think about the blessing of God, in many ways we can say this is the approval of God, if you will. Think about it in your own life situation with your children. Uh, In the days where sons come to ask fathers-in-law for their daughter's hand, I give you my blessing. I approve. It's the same sort of principle for us. What greater gift, brothers and sisters, what greater gift can we as a child of God receive from the Heavenly Father and His blessing? God's promise is God's blessing. He will be blessed in His doing, James writes for us. The person, the man or woman who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres in doing that, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. What sort of blessing is James referring to? He doesn't quantify it because that would confuse us. Sometimes, maybe often in our environment, in our demographic, in this church, and and in, and in, in America more generally, maybe often God blesses us in tangible ways. He blesses us materially. He blesses us with multiple children. He blesses us with good health. But we can get ourselves in trouble theologically and doctrinally and even practically. We can begin to get ourselves in trouble by focusing on God's blessing only when we can see it or count it or touch it. Instead, remember where James was influenced. He was a half-brother of the Christ. He refers frequently to Jesus' preaching on the Sermon of the Mount. Frequently, in other places in the Gospels that are worked into James's book. So we look back to the Gospels, and I think we get a deeper sense of what it means, a clearer sense, a more appropriate sense of what it means to be blessed by God. Turn to Matthew 5 with me if you have your Scriptures. I want to show you this. I think we get a deeper sense. What does it mean to be blessed by God? Does it mean that I'm going to have plenty of money? I'm going to be able to pay all my bills? Does it mean I'm going to have lots of children if that's my desire? Does it mean my health is always going to be good? It might mean those things. The common grace of God bestows those things on a lot of people who aren't believers. 
But I think Jesus would have us turn our attention a little bit different when we think about blessing. Especially in the context that James is giving it to us here in verse 25. Listen to the Beatitudes, beginning of verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Closing words of this, at least as it's captured for us in our Bibles. Rejoice and be glad, all of you who are blessed in these ways. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. (coughs) Excuse me. All of God's promises find their ultimate experience in heaven. Ultimately, all of the promises of God will find their fulfillment and their completion in heaven. We, by his grace, we experience many of those in this life. But ultimately, the blessings that James is writing about is the promise of eternal life with God in heaven. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad when they're slandering you and persecuting you and even killing those who are followers of Christ. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. I believe this is James' point when he talks to us about blessing. In verse 25, his teaching is so reflective of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I think we're on solid ground if we go there to get a sense of blessing or approval in his context. Listen to me. James is not naive about our desires for peace and prosperity in this life. The Jews who left Judaism to convert to Christianity understood what it meant to be isolated and left alone. James is not naive about the realities of what they would give up. But like his half-brother, he just knows what's better. He knows what blessings matter more. We spent our time this morning remembering that hearing is not enough. We need to do something with what we hear. Some of you in here this morning are not followers of Christ. You're hearing this and you're not quite sure what to do with all of it. How am I a doer of what I hear this morning? For those who are not followers of Christ, the only way for you to do is to do what Jesus said when they asked him. What works must I do to enter into heaven? Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. That is the work for you this morning. That is is the doing for you. That is the act of obedience for you this morning if you feel that God is tugging on your heart. Perhaps you've been coming for several weeks and, and Pastor Chase has been teaching you very, very critical, deep matters of doctrine and theology. and You've wrestled with those in your mind, but every week he's been careful to make sure that he ties that in to an understanding of what it means to receive the mercy of God and to walk by that mercy in his, uh, in his blessing and in his salvation. 
this morning, perhaps something from this word of James has encouraged you now that you have heard the word in this way, to be a doer who acts. Your acting this morning would be to receive Christ. I'll be around after. The other pastors will be here, standing out in the exit ways. If you're not sure what to do with that or how to do that or what it means or have more questions about it, I encourage you to seek one of us out before you leave this morning. It is only through faith in Christ that we get any eternal blessing from God. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for James. Thank you that he is direct and straightforward, practical in our way of thinking about it. Thank you that he doesn't pull his punches. Thank you that he is not afraid to use his authority. He speaks to us in, in language of exhortation and command. He wants us to come away from his letter, stirred to act, so that we can make use of this great faith that you have bestowed upon us. For your glory, for the good of the surroundings and our environment, Father, people in our community, and for our own good. Father, help us as we read James to love Jesus, love people, and help people love Jesus by being a doer who acts. In Jesus' name, amen.